Divine, and today we are continuing our series on relationships. Will my slideshow work? It is not. I had to really press the button. Interesting. Indeed, I had to really press the button as well. There we go. Thank you, Daniel. I saw that. We're on that. We're going to make it happen. All right. Guys, we're talking about how to be real in relationships, how to not pretend, how to do them well God's way. And last week we talked about communication. And for everyone who likes practical messages, it was an absolute dream. And for people who maybe don't like practical messages, maybe it wasn't such a dream, but I hope it still had good information. So you can listen to that if you missed it online. But today, we are talking about relationships and sexuality. I've already seen some eye rolls. I'm not going to say who. Mom. All right. But... We as a church actually talk about sexuality at least one week a year, if not a whole series. And why do we do that when every single person who comes squirms in their seats and is like, oh, really? I accidentally came to church on this week. I could have scheduled a hair appointment instead by accident, on purpose. But the reason we do it is because the whole culture is inundated in sexuality and talk about sexuality and talk about sex. It's everywhere. You can't walk down the street or turn on the TV or listen to music without hearing about it. So, as God's people have done throughout the centuries, we decided we should probably talk about it too and talk about God's idea about sexuality. Does that sound good? Yeah! I knew I'd get some sarcastic response. Yay! Guys, three takeaways from today. If everybody can get these three things, I will have succeeded. One, know that God's attitude toward sex is a good one. Two, know that if you're in a sexual sin, you can get out of a sexual sin. And three, know that if you feel tarnished in some way, you do not have to. That's where we're going. I just want to take all the anticipation right out of the air. Those are the three areas we're going to dive in. But first, we are going to start with the first admission. We're going to stop pretending that godly sexuality hasn't always been odd. Godly sexuality has always been a little bit odd. Always. In every place that God's people went, God's commands of how to handle yourself sexually were always strange. Let's go back to Leviticus 18. God is giving the people the law. He's saying, this is the way I want you to do things. They're transitioning from Egypt into the promised land. And he says this at the beginning of Leviticus 18. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. In other words, I'm in charge. I'm going to make the rules, okay? Okay, good. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. By the way, world superpower at that point, okay? Probably the most important area in the world. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Basically, everyone else in the whole world. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Okay? Listen to me. Do things my way. You just came from the number one superpower in the world and they did things a certain way. Don't do that. And you're going to the next place that the superpowers are going to rise and everybody does things a certain way. Don't do that. I'm the boss. Do things my way. And then there is a laundry list of things that God says are absolute sexual no-nos. Read the list. Don't do that stuff. There we go. There's that sermon. And then at the end, just in case they didn't get it, at the end of Leviticus 18, he says this. 
Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways that I just listed, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Let's pause there. Sex is a big deal to God. Yes. How many people know that sex is a big deal and God thinks sexuality is valuable? Yeah. It's important. It's important enough for him to go on and, and list specific things. Don't do this bunch of things. Okay? It's very important. He goes on, you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you. Godly sexuality has always been weird. It has always been the case that in whatever land God's people went in and they started talking about sex, God's people would say, well, actually, uh, we think you should only do these things. And they would be like, what? Nobody thinks that. I just visited Egypt. They don't think that. And here in Canaan, nobody thinks that. You're weird, man. This goes right into the New Testament. We're going to kind of camp out in Ephesians 4, 17 to 19 and Ephesians 5, 1 to 4. Here's Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. Paul is writing the church in Ephesus. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. That means everybody else. In the futility of their thinking. Ooh, sounds kind of insulting, Paul. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Ouch, man. Due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, mm. and they are full of greed. So Paul is saying, that way you used to live because that's the way literally everybody lives, and that way you used to think about sex because that's the way literally everybody thinks about sex, don't do that. But Paul, we're going to seem weird. Yes, as always. And could we just transport, we, we moved up about 1,500 years, right, from Leviticus to Ephesians. Let's move up another 2,000. Is it still weird? Yes. Is it still considered a little odd, godly sexuality? We are those people traditionally, and you have found your way into a church that still believes Come that on. God's plan for sexuality is one man and one woman for life. Amen. For Praise life. Now, is that necessarily easy? <laughs> no. Do we have a lot of cultural pushback? Yes, yeah. but my point is not, you know, all those people, how can they think otherwise? That's exactly wrong, because the Bible clearly shows that everyone has always thought otherwise everywhere, unless God intervenes and says, actually, I have a best. I have a best way, and here it is. I want you to do it this way, but it's always been a little odd. And we kid ourselves, and I think we do a disservice to the world when we pretend otherwise. Here's a quote from my man, David Guzik. I love him on Ephesians 4, 17. I'm fixing to disagree with him, though, in a couple weeks in the Kingdom Parables message. I know, it hurts my heart, but stay tuned. All right. There is a constant tendency for Christians to display to the world that we really aren't so different after all. This is usually a misguided effort to gain the world's respect, in quotes, or approval. This must be resisted at all costs because the goal in itself is both undesirable and unachievable. Amen. It's always been odd. You can't convince people it's not odd. You can't convince people we're really not that different because we have been commanded to live a sexual ethic that is different. Mm -hmm. 
And there's a wonderful commentator. I really enjoyed his commentary, actually. His name's Clinton Arnold. I had to buy his book for school, but I really enjoyed it. And he said this about the passage we just read. Paul calls these people darkened and ignorant. And he kind of calls out the elephant in the room, and he says that if this letter were to have gotten into the hands of non-Christian Gentiles in Ephesus or elsewhere, it could very well have been the cause of great offense. Because many people believed they had a moral lifestyle that displayed many virtues and repudiated many vices. Again, literally everyone everywhere, except this tiny group of people that are obeying the dictates of God. So our response to the world and the way people think about sexual things, literally everywhere for all time, cannot be one of hateful disdain. That makes zero sense. Everyone has thought differently than God has thought about sex, everywhere for all time. So how could you, how can you, oh, I'm just so disgusted by you, that's, that's kind of taken away from us. But we also cannot go to the other side, the ditch on the other side of the road, and say, hey, come on, man. It's really not that different. No, it's world different. So we need to avoid those two kind of pitfalls. Does that make sense? Amen. All right. Yes. Let's not pretend, pretend. Pretend? I can barely speak to this. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't pretend. Don't do that. Let's not pretend godly sexuality isn't weird. People have always thought it's weird, but it is the best. Point two. According to the Bible, according to God's plan, your sexuality is a gift to your spouse. Your sexuality is actually for them. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't enjoy it. We're going to talk about that later when it gets super awkward. Oh, I need so many slides. No, not really. I had to go there. No, God intends you to enjoy sex and enjoy your sexuality, but your sexuality, like everything else, is a gift for someone else. Check this out. Ephesians 5, 1 through 3. I actually wrote 1 through 4, but it's just 1 through 3. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Sandwiched in between a bunch of talk about sex and culture in Ephesians 4 and to talk about marriage that's coming, is Paul saying, hey, we need to follow Christ. Paul, could you possibly be saying that we actually need to follow the way of Christ in our sexuality? And yes, he's absolutely saying that. And I use a lot of quotes in this message because I want to bolster what I'm saying with what other really smart people with lots of letters have said. And no, I'm not ashamed of that. The note in the NIV Study Bible for Ephesians 5.1 says this, The way we imitate our Lord is to act just as he did. The sacrificial way Jesus expressed his love for us is not, is not only the means of salvation, but also an example of the way we are to live for the sake of others. Guys, in everything. Healthy, godly sexuality in a marriage relationship is a gift to your spouse. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, it's kind of a big deal because it, it puts some tempering on what we're going to talk about a little later when we talk about how good sex is. Who was here when I played Let's Get It On at the end of my message? Yeah, that was great. I know, some people didn't like that. So <laughs> that was one of my favorite things I ever did here in four years. Uh, are you going to play it again? I'm not. I don't have it queued up. There will be no Marvin Gaye in this message. 
Blessing. Check it out. I cannot think of a single sexual sin that isn't marked by the fact that it's a taking for yourself at someone else's expense. Which is exactly the opposite of God's design for sex, which is a thing that you're allowed to enjoy, but it's a gift for someone else. Look, when we look at the laundry list, right, of, of <coughs> common sexual sins, and if you're locked in any of these, we're going to talk about a prayer for you at the end, actually in a few slides. But what's pornography? Well, pornography is me eating up somebody else's sexual perversion, really. And I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. If, if you're, like, locked in, I'll, I won't look at anybody's eyes. I'm preaching to the floor at this point. But if you're locked in a cycle of pornography, odds are you don't like it. You actually don't enjoy where you're at and you don't enjoy what you're doing because it's depleting somehow. It's depleting because it does not follow God's plan for sex. It's a taking. Sexual activity outside of marriage. You are taking from that person, you're taking from your future spouse, and you're taking from their future spouse. There's a lot of stealing going on. It doesn't feel good in the long run. So many of us, when we were dating, you know, we get our first boyfriend or girlfriend, and it's like, what can I do? I might be able to kiss them. I might be able to French kiss them. I might be able to blah, 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 blah. And you would never sit down and say, what can I take from this person? But in a sense, that's what you're doing. What can I get away with? What can I steal from what they should have been able to give to their future spouse? Adultery, you're saying the marriage commitment that God gave you isn't good enough. You're going to take from somebody else. You're going to take from your wife because you're selling your, your commitment. And you're going to take from somebody else's spouse. Gross. And even internal, just focused on, you know, habitual lusting does nothing for anyone else. And it's all about taking a moment for you. Maybe a long moment. Selfish. So it is selfish at its core. And God's plan for sexuality, thank you, Jimmy, at the rock, is selfless. It's actually self-giving. And if you guys are married, a lot of people with healthy marriages, if they'll talk about such things, will probably tell you that the best sex happens when it's a mutual giving and not a taking. So, number one, stop pretending that godly sexuality hasn't always been considered odd by everyone else in the world. It has. But let's also not pretend that godly sexuality isn't a gift for your spouse. It is. And most sexual deviants, I can't think of anything that's not a taking at someone else's expense instead of a giving. Does that make sense? You guys are doing so good. Transitional puppies. Justin says, where is this going? I didn't even think about that. Oh, I love you guys. They are letting me preach at the right church. Point three. It's good and dangerous. Now, it matters how you read this, right? Because it's good and dangerous means it's really dangerous. It's good and dangerous means it's not really that good. But I actually mean it's good and dangerous. It's both. We're going to talk about how this can be possible in a minute. But let's take a minute, maybe a long minute, to get it really awkward in here and talk about how good God intends sex to be. I won't get graphic. Don't worry about it. Thank you. But we're going to look at Hebrews 13.4, okay? There's this little verse stuck at the end of Hebrews, and the author of Hebrews He's kind of like, he's getting his last bullet points in, right? A lot of biblical authors will do this. and like, oh, and this, and this, and this. You see this from Paul all the time. It has nothing to do with prophecy. Don't despise prophecy. Love one another, all that stuff. I'll be there soon. Love you, Paul. So the author of Hebrews is doing his thing. 
And he says this. This is the New American Standard Translation. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. Now you read that. And you would be excused if you thought, oh God, I'm married and I'm getting a warning, right? Because I need to make sure that I'm holding my marriage in honor. Not exactly sure what he means. He doesn't expound, but I, 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 I will do that, I promise. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Have I defiled my marriage bed by accident? What is he really saying? And like, if you've been steeped in traditional church theology for long enough, sadly, you might take this to mean, when you're having special married time, don't you enjoy it too much. Because God is up there and he's watching. And if you enjoy it too much, like that's for making babies and that's it. Like I saw you smile one time, you're close to the line. <laughs> you know, like, like you, would, you would feel like you're being warned about your marriage. But I've heard this differently, so I, I thought, man, that's not the verse I heard. So I looked it up in the King James, and the King James says this, marriage is honorable in everything, or in all, and the bed undefiled. Well, that's different. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. We have a verb problem in the Greek. I took Greek. I can actually talk about it. That's so exciting. Yeah. But when you look in the Greek, there's no verb in the first part. It literally says, marriage, honorable, bed, undefiled. Seriously. And you, and what's that? Me Tarzan Eugene. That's exactly right. <laughs> so, and, you know, Paul does this kind of often, and you have to infer what he means by that. So the King James is like, I think is is best here. Marriage is honorable. The bed is undefiled. And really, the New American Standard Bible is getting at the same point. You know? And obviously, if you look at it in that context, what is it saying? It's saying marriage is honorable. Don't dishonor it. The bed is undefiled. Well, how do you honor it? Guys, there's a great article about this. That's a curious noise. At Bible.org. So if you want to read something about this verse that will actually make you feel good, go to Bible.org and read about Hebrews 13, 4. And they say, guys, he's saying you honor marriage by fully enjoying marriage. And you don't defile your marriage bed by having sex before marriage or with someone you're not married to. It really is that simple. Because God likes marriage. So here's the new, the new Anthony translation. God <laughs> likes marriage, and he likes it when married people make that sweet loving. Don't mess this up. <laughs> Don't mess this up. Don't be fornicating before you're married and don't have that sex with anybody else that you're not married to. But God likes sex in marriage. God thinks sex is so valuable, he talks about it extensively. Remember the laundry list I talked about in Leviticus 18? Read it. Don't do those things. But God feels the need to be very specific about sex in the Bible. So if you can't find it in a no, it's probably all right. Am I allowed to say that? I don't know. Listen to me. We as individuals and we as a church get in trouble in two different ways. When we say yes to things that God says no to. Mm -hmm. And when we say no to things that God says yes to. That's really bad. Yes. We as, as a church sometimes, I'm not about, you know, slapping the bride of Christ to like gain credibility somehow. But that's no good to me at all. But we have tended to make some rules where God did not see fit to make any rules. All right? It's just a fact. So don't mess up your marriage, but you honor it by really enjoying marriage. Your sexuality is a gift to your spouse. 
This is another quote from David Guzik, which I have to read as a quote because I didn't want to say this for me. Here we go. Perhaps through a past of sexual sin, that's kind of important, perhaps through a past of sexual sin, which most Christians come from, I think, sadly. It doesn't have to be that way, but I think it is true. Many find it difficult to believe that the marriage bed is, in fact, undefiled. Guilt and sexual hang-ups are appropriate to extramarital sex, but not in marital sex. Yet this is where the guilt and sexual hang-ups often exist and where they most frequently cause trouble. God allows great freedom in the variety of sexual expression in marriage, though all must be done with a concern for the needs of their spouse and in love. Why? Because of point two, your sexuality is actually a gift to your spouse. So David Guzik is saying, will you lighten up, please? He's saying, if you're married and you have great sex with your spouse, you can imagine God in heaven winking at you and saying, you're welcome. <laughs> is that so hard? And if that sounds odd to you, if you're like just really bristling inside, it's halfway not your fault. Here's a wonderful quote from the, the Bible.org article, and uh, he quotes a guy named D.H. Fields, who wrote in the New Dictionary of Theology, and he says this, The history of the church betrays a far less positive attitude to sexuality than the Bible's. With very few exceptions, patristic and medieval writers, those are the big fathers of the church, right? The, the cornerstones of our theology, really. With a very few exceptions, patristic and medieval writers condemned the sensual pleasure of intercourse as sinful, but the Bible affirms the pleasure of the sexual relationship in marriage, both for men and women. Yeah. Is good. God likes it. If you don't like it, I guess you're allowed to have that opinion. But won't you be surprised when you meet God and he tells you his opinion about sex and marriage? He's excited about it. He made it. It was his idea. And if you need a little more help, Ephesians 3 to 4 in the context of sex, is pretty shocking. Paul says, Immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. What's he talking about? Sex, right? As is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting. What's he talking about? Silliness and coarse jesting about what? Sex. But rather giving of thanks. About what? Sex. Probably sex. It's good as a way of life. There's plenty of verses in the Bible talking about having a lifestyle of thanksgiving. But Paul is telling people how God wants them to relate to sex. And he says, don't be crude about it. Don't be crass. Don't have sex with people you're not married to. Don't have sex with people before you're married. But check it out. As far as sex goes in general, maybe you should be thankful for that stuff. Like, are you not? I think you're pretending. Really. Come on. God says you're welcome. You should say thank you. Thank you. It's not really game time. I decided to change the game because everybody's on to my games now. Everybody knows they're all they're sideways in their jokes. So here's what the game was going to be, but everybody knows it's, it's kind of a jest. The game was going to be good or dangerous, and I was going to have you pick which one. But here's the thing. I'll let you know right off the, the bat here. We do a horrible thing when we want to say something is not good because it's dangerous or not dangerous because it's good. We do this in our culture all the time. I'm not going to go off on a soapbox and talk about anything in particular, guns, but you can infer. Like, it's dangerous. It can't be good. Right? What, are you, what are you talking about? Let's just look at some things that are both good and dangerous. 
Number one, a scalpel. My goodness, has anyone in the room had a run-in with a scalpel they wish they hadn't had? I mean, this is a thing. So, accidents happen during surgery, right? Yeah. It's a thing. But, you know, the surgery is good. They use the same tool to fix the problem that caused the problem. If you are shocked or if you are stabbed, they may have to pull out a knife to fix the issue. The scalpel is not bad. The scalpel is good. Is the scalpel dangerous? Yeah. Very. Very. But the fact that it's dangerous doesn't mean that it isn't good. How about this puppy here? We got, press that button. We have a Rottweiler. Hello. It's a cute one. It's a big one. It probably wants to give you kisses. We can all talk about how good dogs are, right? Even if you're not a dog person, there are like, just, there are clinical benefits to having a dog around. Yeah. They actually make you feel better. It causes your body to release endorphins and stuff. You handle stress differently when there's a dog in your house. But it might be more stressful for you if this guy's chewing on your leg because he's somebody is attacked dog. You know what I mean? Rottweilers are dangerous. But that doesn't mean they're not good. And lastly, let's look at a roller coaster. Now, we might have some differing opinions on this one, but I heard a yay and I heard a, I heard a no. <laughs> What's that? Throw up. I agree with you, Bill. I, I don't know. But I, I use the roller coaster on purpose because every now and then we have a mishap. So they are kind of dangerous. But they're good, aren't they? And they're an awful lot of fun. An awful lot of fun. You guys might see where I'm going here. But if you were to go to the amusement park and say, I've ridden your mean streak at Cedar Point, which is what this is a picture of. And it's one of the reasons I don't like roller coasters, because I rode it. And uh, if you said, man, that was good. But I noticed the cars, they were locked down. It was very restrictive. And I also noticed there were these wooden guardrails. It really obstructed my view as I was blazing past. And also, it's a very uncomfortable safety bar, you know, that, that keeps coming down like, I got an idea. I want to ride this thing, but I want you to let me turn. Huh? I don't want to be restricted by this track that somebody else thinks that they can put in place. Who are they to decide where my coaster goes? All right? I want to be able to turn. I don't need this safety bar. And let's get rid of these rails, man. Come on, freedom. Let's get rid of these rails. Mm -hmm. Now, you go to Cedar Point, and they're going to say, out of the park. No way. Because they are concerned with being sued. But morally, if you go to God and say, just, I want to be off the track. I want to go off the rails. God says, no. okay. Okay. Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardening of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, as to indulge in every kind of impurity, they are full of greed. Arnold on this says that unlike in Romans, Paul is stressing the fact that they did this to themselves. They are in the state they are in, darkened, ignorant, by their own volition. They put themselves here. They chose the lifestyle, they chose the course, and God did not stop them. Friends, you can't have it both ways. We can't think of God as super controlling and also acknowledge that he's the God that will honor your own decision to a scary degree. Mm -hmm. He will let you go off the rails. And I'm telling you, there are some people here in this room that either have or are off the rails in sexuality. Mm -hmm. 
Let's stop pretending it's not odd culturally. Let's stop pretending that it's not good. Let's stop pretending that it's not a gift for our spouse. But let's also stop pretending, if this is you, that you are in fact off the rails. How do you know? Well, you might feel a bit darkened. You might feel separated from the life that you used to feel from God. There might be, it's just not flowing like it used to. You might feel a bit hard. In fact, some translations say that they're past all feeling. It just doesn't affect you like it used to. There isn't the guilt. There isn't the shame. But there's also not the life. There's not the vitality. Guys, if you've been stuck in this pattern, here is something that you should pray for. And you can do it today. And you don't have to be in the pattern. Seriously. Pray that God brings light if you feel darkened. Do it. Say exactly that. Ask Him to fill you with life again. Ask Him to soften your conscience. But Pastor Anthony, won't that hurt? Yes, and you will thank God for it. Ask God to allow you to feel all the yuckiness that's appropriate again. This is actually a blessing and not a curse. That's what keeps us on the track. And then ask God for forgiveness. When King David sinned, knowingly and willingly, he did terrible stuff. He went to God and he prayed this prayer in, in Psalm 51.10. This is a wonderfully deep prayer in only two lines. He said, God created me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit in me. You cannot do it, but God can, and he will. So please don't leave today if you know you're off the rails or feeling a little dark and a little lifeless without praying this prayer and expecting God to do what God can and will do. Amen? Amen. Can I get a heart your amen? Amen. Thank you very much. All right, this is my false close. I've got one more point after this, but I probably should announce it. I ruined it. Guys, again, biblical sexuality has always been countercultural. Always. Always. We don't want to try to convince the culture we're not that different, but we also don't have the right to stand and just throw rocks and hate them. That's Both right. are inappropriate, but don't pretend that we're not distinct, and don't pretend that we haven't always been distinct, and don't pretend that God's way isn't the best. Two, your sexuality is a gift to your spouse. The fact that your sexuality is for your spouse puts just a wonderful frame of reference into how you view sexuality on all fronts. It gives you a grid for, for just discerning what's sexual sin, and it gives you a grid for knowing what's appropriate and good. And three, the fact that sexuality can be dangerous doesn't mean it isn't really, really good, and God likes it. Again, imagine God in heaven winking and saying, you're welcome. Last point. I alluded to it a minute ago, but I want to say it right at the end. Your sexuality is valuable. You personally, not sexuality in general, but your sexuality personally is valuable to God. And I think, I know, that some people think they are so tarnished, so run through the mud by their own choices or by being victimized by others, that their sexuality is worthless, it's, it's sullied, it can never go back to what it was. There's a Lincoln Park line that says once the paper is crumpled up, it's crumpled up, it can't be perfect again. That's lies. Because we serve a God that can make the paper perfect again. There is a little verse in the book of Joel, Joel 2.25, that says this. The Lord says, I will give you back. Somebody say, give you back. Give you back. What you lost. To the swarming locusts, the hopping locusts, the stripping locusts, the cutting locusts. Lots of locusts. And then he says this. It was I who sent this great destroying army against you. 
Anthony, what are you saying? That my feelings of shame or judgment from God? No, not that at all. I'm saying that in this situation, the prophet Joel is prophesying to a people who knew they messed up, knew it was their fault, and knew that the tragedy that was befalling them was God's own judgment. And God steps in at the end and says, you know what? You just turn back to me, and even this I will restore. Even if it's your own fault, even if you deserved it, even if you knew full well what you were doing, and even if you recognize rightly that this is my own discipline in your life, I'm about to give you back what the locust to destroy. Yes. I think that there's more than one person in this room that needs to do that. You need to know that that's the heart of God. It's all words. Everything else I just said about sexuality because you've been sitting here feeling like garbage. God says, stop it. I will create in you a clean heart. Yes. I will renew in you a steadfast spirit. Please do not leave today without getting prayer for that. Thank you, guys. Appreciate my support.